Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. Two Henry VI is actually really good. I was, Do you think? Yeah, I was, no, I was kind of dreading it. I, you know, you know how I feel about middle sequels. Um, I mean, this one was written first, so. Oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah, like I had forgotten that this was the Jack Cade one, you know? I hate this one. You hate Two Henry Six? I thought you liked I mean, it. No, I like One Henry Six. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It's not me. No. I would I would never like such a play such as this. Oh. Oh. And I judge people who do. No, I don't. <laughs> but you kind of do. But I kind of do. <laughs> you judgy bitch. That's why I love you. Welcome to the Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Whamlet. And this week we're talking about the second part of King Henry VI. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. <laughs> what if we didn't hope that you enjoyed the show and came back for more? <laughs> what if we're like, we hope you hate this and you never listen again? <laughs> That would be counterintuitive. It would. Um, <laughs> we should have saved that for like April 1st or something. Right. Didn't we do that once on like, I don't know, like Henry Eight? maybe? We were like, you're not going to enjoy this. Something like that. And you might not come back. Probably. I mean, we do like to keep it 100 with the people. That's true. That's true. So anyway, <laughs> every week we discuss a different play by our favorite guy, William <laughs> Theobald Shakespeare at what we like to call the 101 level. That is introductory stuff, everything that you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes, and some other cool stuff that you will get nowhere else, yeah. like our opinions. God, Becky, don't! Becky, don't! <laughs> Becky, don't is... preach. You're in trouble deep. Okay, sorry. It's not. It's, Becky! That's not how it goes? That's not a toy, sweetheart. I love you, but it's not a toy, and it's not for kittens. That's what you think, ma'am. It's chocolate. Oh, oh, right. Yeah, definitely not a toy. <laughs> definitely not for the kitties. Okay, so before we get to any of the 2 Henry Six joyousness, uh, it's time for the rhetorical device of the week, because we are word nerds. So each mm. week, we will draw a random device from our handy-dandy ASC rhetorical device flashcards. For actors and scholars, knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize patterns in Shakespeare's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and, Becky, how it's being said. <laughs> Basically, it helps us understand Becky through her speech tactics. Mm. Sorry, we have a co-host this week. Her name's Becky and she's my cat. Aww. She's my foster cat. Just everyone out there. I did not name her. She came with the name, which I love. But I would never name my own cat Becky. <laughs> it's such a pedestrian name for a cat. I know. Yeah. All right. Well. Sorry. Um, draw a card, Bottlenose. Yeah. If Becky's okay with it, Jess, I'm just going to ask you to pick between purple or orange. Uh, 
Is that orange? It looks red. It's definitely orange. All right. Well, it looks red. Um, let's go with uh, orange. Orange. Great. So the penultimate ah, rhetorical Betty. device. Oh, dear. Of, of the week from our flashcard deck is prosopopia poia. Pro, prosopoia? Sure. Pro, prosopopoia. Yeah. <laughs> it's got a lot of vowels. <laughs> I'm going to spell it P R O S O P O P O E I A. Yeah. Prosopopoia. Prosopopoia. <laughs> Anyway, um, it's that's a fancy ass word for another p word, which is personification. Oh uh, sure, it's all that's all it is. Personification. Um, we know what that is, but I'll give you an example from the flashcard. Anyway, it's Iago. Oh, beware, my lord of jealousy. Becky. Oh, beware, my lord of Becky. She is the green-eyed monster that doth mock the meat it feeds on. So the green-eyed monster being a personification of jealousy, not Becky. Uh, sure. So that's prosopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopop
when the, when the pages were being stacked, when, sorry, when the sheets were being stacked and folded so that they knew that things were in the right order was they would have what were called catchwords at the bottom of each page, not each sheet, but each page. Okay, so if you think about our eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, you would have probably three catchwords because the fourth page wouldn't need one because that's the end, right? So if you think about just any, like open up any book in the world anywhere in front of you now, just to have it in your page or in your head. Um, so right now I have, let's say, uh, the Arden edition of Henry VI Part Two. So weird. Um, and at the very bottom, the last line of page 107 reads, Memorial reports deriving from the folio versions. Of great. That's it. Then I turn the page... And the next word, the first word at the top of that page is importance. So in an early modern text, importance would be at the bottom of this first page. Sort of where you might imagine a page number would go, but not quite. So that the person putting the book together could easily check. I know that the, the, next, the first word on the top of the next page needs to be importance. Is it? Great. Moving on. And it's just, it's called a catchword. Um, that's how, it's, it's one of the many ways that printers ensured that things got put together correctly. Um, I hope that I've explained that in a way without visuals. Yeah, I that, follow. I, I okay, follow. good. Yeah, good. I get it. Yeah. Um, I love catchwords. I think, I think they're great. They're not foolproof, obviously. Nothing is. Um, but they're fun and exciting and fun. Yeah, it's kind of cool to see which word it ends up being, almost like a mm -hmm. it, like Mad Lib surprise mm -hmm. in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you want to see these catchwords in action by folding your own quarto, you can go to Shakes in the Sheets. Those folk, they. No, shakes, shakes in Sheets. Damn it! I did it again! <laughs> shakes ah! in the Sheets. Shakes okay. in Sheets. I, okay. The, okay, there. Mm -hmm. Shakes in Sheets and yeah. practice folding your own quarto. Um, yeah. I recently downloaded all five of the plays that they had, or four cool. of them. Yeah, because I want to use them in our workshops. We have a yeah. textual variance workshop that was like perfect for that. So it's a really cool resource, and mm -hmm. then you can do it yourself and see what Jess is talking about with these catchwords. Mm -hmm. You can yeah. fold along, as it were, yeah. while she while you listen to this episode, if you wanted to do that. <laughs> um, it's a super fun activity, and I recommend it. Yeah, I'm going to throw their, uh, a link up to their stuff on our on the landing page for this episode. Definitely. I'm going to do that because it's good, a cool good. thing. It's a very cool thing. So thank you. Catchwords. That was your burbage break with master, master Hamlet. I don't know why I said it weird like that, but you did. I did. Okay. It's a history play. So you know what that means? That means, um, God, it's been so long since we've done one Henry VI. We need to pick up where we left off after the first part of Henry VI, where Joan like got burned and stuff. Um, so, long story short, Team York, the White Rose, and Team Lancaster, the Red Rose, still totally hate each other. They're like in the throes of hate for each other. Henry VI, just to refresh your memory, Henry VI, that would be the wonderful, renowned Henry V's son, right? Henry V was the 
great one of the greatest english kings right uh his yeah. his son was made king as an infant because henry v died of like cholera or some crap on the battlefield dysentery dysentery that's the yeah. other one the, the other one that makes the, you poop the historical henry VI. yes shakespeare's henry VI is a grown-ass man no i'm getting i'm getting there yeah okay just making sure i'm getting there so right. henry the sixth was made king as an infant and though he is a young man in this play um he still needs a lot of hand-holding to rule um so what you get is a depiction of a, a fairly weak king and in this play it starts out with this guy humphrey uh and then sort of morphs to his wife uh margaret so but really when i was Thinking about what parts of the family tree you needed to know, I realized that Richard of York in this play, in Act 2, Scene 2, gives it to you. He gives it to you and that gets you all caught up. So I'm just going to read it. I'm just going to read this the speech. Mm, is this um, Edward III had seven sons? Yeah. It's the seven sons speech. So, I love speech. Yeah. It's a great speech. And uh, thanks, Shakespeare. It gets you caught up in exactly where you need to be in the family tree. All in one go. Um, and surprisingly, he waits until Act 2 to give it to you. I just keep saying give it to you. I'm just... There's something subliminal happening to me today. Anyway, York says... Uh, oh, and Jess, I might need your help a little bit later in this scene because he does a little extension. Yeah, can you tell me where I'm going? Yes. Act 2, Scene 2. Basically the top of Act 2, Scene 2. Unless your work is divided by scenes, which mine is. Um, no. Because I'm at uh -huh. the Oxford, so Scene 6. And it's like seven lines from the top of the scene ah then thus yeah edward the third yeah. had seven sons yes yeah, so i'll i'll you. go over there and then you can do the warwick's lines in the middle okay mm, then cool. thus edward the third my lords had seven sons the first edward the black prince prince of wales the second william of hatfield and the third lionel duke of clarence Next to whom was John of Gaunt, the Duke of Lancaster. The fifth was Edmund Langley, Duke of York. The sixth, Thomas of Woodstock, Duke of Gloucester. William of Windsor was the seventh and last. Edward the Black Prince died before his father and left him, then left behind him Richard, his only son, who, after Edward III's death, reigned as king till Henry Bolingbroke, Duke of Lancaster, the eldest son and heir of John of Gaunt, crowned by the name of Henry IV, seized on the realm, deposed the rightful king, sent his poor queen to France from whence she came, and him to Pomfret, where, as you all know, harmless Richard was murdered traitorously. Father, the Duke of York hath told the truth, thus got the house of Lancaster the crown. Which now they hold by force and not by right, for Richard, the first son's heir being dead, the issue of the next son should have reigned. But William of Hatfield died without an heir. The third son, Duke of Clarence, from whose line I claim the crown, had issue Philippe, a daughter, who married Edmund Mortimer, Earl of March. Edmund had issue Roger, Earl of March. Roger had issue Edmund, Anne, and Eleanor. This Edmund, in the reign of Bolingbroke, as I have read, laid claim unto the crown, and, but for Owen Glendower, had been king, who kept him in captivity till he died. Right. And if you're thinking back to the first tetralogy, Edmund Mortimer, that's the that's the Mortimer, the same Mortimer he's talking about being imprisoned yeah. by yeah. Glendower. So just to pick pick people up. OK, York says, finally, he's bringing it home, I think. Yeah, bringing it home. <laughs> His eldest sister, Anne, 
my mother, being heir unto the crown, married Richard, Earl of Cambridge, who was son to Edmund Langley, Edward III's fifth son. By her, I claim the kingdom. She was heir to Roger, Earl of March, who was the son of Edmund Mortimer, who married Philippe, sole daughter unto Lionel, Duke of Clarence. So, if the issue of the elder son succeed before the younger, I am king. Complicated. Yes. So he, uh, this is, again, the person speaking who for whom I read, um, York, Richard of York, that is um, Richard III's dad. He thinks he has a better claim to the throne because this, again, all goes back to primogeniture, and he's claiming that primogeniture through his mother. So I don't know if that was helpful or not. I th- think it was probably a little more succinct actually than me trying to bumble my way back through it oh yeah for sure so, and again uh, like family trees are hard without visuals seriously seriously it's a fun scene to try to, to try to play out so uh we always begin our summary section uh and our dramatis personae with a five word unhelpful title mine is five words and also a direct quote from the play about which i'm really excited it's and suffolk dies by pirates Yes, it's a quote from the play. Look it up. I did. Where? Where he dies by pirates. It's not the prophecy? No, it's in the scene where he dies by pirates. Where they take him off to his death. Siri, not that I don't believe you, but I feel like there might be a textual variant, and I'm you know I'm interested in that. Yes. Um, I'm looking at... Scene 13, which actually is somewhere in Act 4. 4-1. It's 4-1. 4-1. Around line 140. I have the Oxford. The Oxford says line 141. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Suffolk dies by pirates. All right. Cool. Mm -hmm. All right. Good, good, good talk. All right. So mine (laughs) is uh, (laughs) woman gets called a witch. Mm, Yes. She does. Again. She does. Yeah. Again, there's more witchcraft in this in mm-hmm, this one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, From mm-hmm. Joan to Eleanor. Yep. All right. So now how about a little dramatis <sighs> personae, but only God, the really important ones. Might be the longest DP we've ever done. <laughs> Total of your sex. I said tape. what I said. Yeah, I said what I said. <laughs> um, of yep. course, it might also not be the longest DP we've ever done by half because I feel like... It's a lot of people, though. You're right. There are more characters in Galatea, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, so this is the order in which they appear in the summary. So we start with Margaret of Anjou, who is now Queen of England. Yes. Then we have her husband, Henry VI, King of England. And then we have the Duke of Gloucester. Apparently his name is Humphrey. Yes. I had his, forgotten that his, fact. Yes, he's Humphrey. <laughs> I was like, who the fuck is Humphrey? Right, it's the Duke of Gloucester. It's In the Duke summary, he's just called Gloucester. Yeah, he does have sort of a derpy name. It's easy to forget, like Barney, yeah. you know. Gloucester. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then we have the Earl of Warwick, a.k.a. the Kingmaker. Richard Plantagenet of the Duke of York. Mm-hmm. Then we have Cardinal Winchester. Then there's the Duke of Somerset. And the Duke of Buckingham. And Duchess Eleanor, who is Gloucester's wife. And the Duke of Suffolk, who's Margaret's boo. Gross. (laughs) Uh, And the Earl of Salisbury. Yes. And then there's Jack Cade, a random guy from Kent. Yeah, he's important, though. He is, though. Uh, 
Then there's Lord Clifford. And there's young Clifford. Guess what? Hits his son. So weird. Well, I played young Clifford. That's right. That's right. You, you know, did. Here burns my candle out. That's right. Okay. So why is this place so goddamn popular? It's hella not. It's not. It's, it's so not. not. Not on its own, anyway. Like, you will most commonly find this play either conflated with the uh-huh. other parts of Henry VI or uh-huh. in rep with the other parts of Henry VI. It is uh-huh. almost never done as a standalone, ever. Um, I, yeah. I feel like I feel like it should be, though. It's got really good stuff. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. I, I dig it. It's got really great stuff. It's got the Jack Cade Rebellion, and Jack Cade is an idiot, and it is yeah. funny to watch. Uh, is it? it is. It totally is. Um, Margaret and Suffolk, their affair has kind of fizzled at this point Bull. because, spoilers, Suffolk gets banished um, and then killed by pirates. Um, yeah. But they have, like, a beautiful goodbye scene. It's, I feel like their affair, though it is an affair, um, is definitely an affair to remember. <sighs> um, and also... Um, York's uh, Richard Plantagenet, the Duke of York's plotting, is almost, almost as good as his son's. He's got some good plotting going on, uh, and it's it's fun. It's, I feel like it's a good one. I enjoyed it. I was reminded how much I, I actually enjoyed it when I, I saw it again recently. So it's not a popular play. It's probably never going to be a terribly popular play, although in its time, it was very popular. Yes, it was. We're going to hear more about that after yes, the summary. Yes, very, very popular. Yeah, so let's dive into that uh, summary right now, shall we? Yeah. Ta-da! Let's do it. We will now summarize the second part of Henry VI for you in a segment that this week we're calling No Lawyers Were Killed in the Making of This Summary. Oh, well, thank goodness. That's a relief. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is the play that that line comes from. Yes, I know. we do. Let's kill all the lawyers. Dude, you're going to steal my thunder. That was my ending but, quote. But we're not going to. We won't we, kill we them. We didn't kill lawyers in the, in because we, because we it's just a summary. Yeah. This is a cruelty-free <laughs> summary. I think it's hilarious when I explain my titles. Yes. Yeah. It's not my fault that your sense of humor is deficient. <laughs> <laughs> or refined? <laughs> Bitch. Now that's a genuine laugh. That's what you're going for. That's what those sound like. <laughs> Fuck off forever. We're done. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you learned more than we did when you started. Ooh. Bye forever. Sick burn, Aubrey. Good while it lasted. We oh won't my. be back in the fall, so <laughs> fuck off forever. All right. Are you ready? So sensitive. Yes, I'm ready. Yeah. I'm so ready. All right. Ready, ready. God. Act one is so much. Okay. It is a lot. If you want to split it up, I'm happy to help, but like it's a Mm, lot. That's cool. Okay. It's just a lot of exposition. Yeah. Okay. Are you ready? You're ready. I'm ready. Here we go. Yeah. So Margaret arrives in England to take her place as Henry VI's bride. As part of the marriage agreement and the peace with France, England is giving up the duchies of Anjou and Maine, which makes Gloucester, Warwick, and York real damn mad. Gloucester really erupts and he storms out. And then Cardinal Winchester points out that Gloucester is super popular with the people and heir to the throne, which makes him real damn dangerous. 
Somerset and Buckingham decide that one of them is the best choice for Lord Protector instead of Gloucester or Winchester. York thinks he should be king and decides to pursue his claim to the throne at an opportune moment. Gloucester has a dream about a staff of office being broken and the heads of Somerset and Suffolk on the broken ends. His wife, Eleanor, thinks this is a good sign and that he'll triumph over his detractors. Gloucester leaves and Eleanor arranges to meet with a witch and a conjurer to ensure Gloucester's success. Plot twist, her conspirators are being paid by Winchester and Suffolk to speed Gloucester's downfall. Oh no! Margaret receives petitioners and it does not go well. She hates that Henry is so weak and timid. People turn against Gloucester, but he still comes out on top in determining who should be regent in France. Spoiler, it's Somerset since York is being disloyal. Margaret insults Eleanor. Some conjuring happens with a witch and a spirit predicts that the king will be deposed, that Suffolk will die by water, and that Somerset should stay away from castles. Then York and Buckingham arrive to arrest all the conspirators. <sighs> so much happens in Act 1. So much. In Act 2, Gloucester and Winchester agree to a secret duel, but Gloucester bails when he finds out his wife's been arrested. He proclaims himself still loyal to the king and banishes Eleanor from him in a show of solidarity with the crown. Salisbury and Warwick pledge their loyalty to York and promise to get him on the throne. Henry pronounces Eleanor's sentence, sparing her life, but forcing her to do public penance and then banishing her to the Isle of Man, much in the style of Cersei from Game of Thrones. If anyone's wondering that what her penance was. Stop. He, uh, Gross. Get what? out. Keep it's the going. same. No like, one cares. I care. <laughs> he also strips Gloucester of his role as protector. Gloucester watches Eleanor's humiliating punishment and she tries to warn him about his enemies. In Act 3, Margaret whispers poison to Henry about Gloucester. Somerset arrives with the news that France has been lost. Gloucester arrives late, and Suffolk immediately arrests him for treason. Henry knows that Gloucester's innocent, but he can't control his nobles, and so he leaves in tears because he's a big fat baby. Margaret, Winchester, Suffolk, and York conspire to have Gloucester murdered. Suffolk and Winchester commission York to go quell an uprising in Ireland because there's no need to con consult the king, right? York is stoked that the government is just handing him an army, an army since he can just use this to usurp the crown. He also has Jack Cade in his pocket, who kind of looks like Mortimer, who is dead, but who is where York's claim to throne comes from. And so York has directed Jack Cade to stir up popular support in Mortimer's name and have a better idea of how the public will take to being ruled by the House of York. The court convenes for Gloucester's trial, and when Suffolk announces his death, Henry faints from shock and grief and then immediately suspects Suffolk when he revives. Margaret throws a fit. Warwick warns that the common people are rioting over Gloucester's death. Henry accuses Suffolk and Winchester of murder. Henry manages Suffolk. Margaret throws another fit, and Henry tells her to shut up. Suffolk and Margaret say their goodbyes. Cardinal Winchester dies. Act 4. Suffolk's been captured by pirates and sent to his death. Jack Cade's rebellion is gaining support. There are a bunch of small battles. A messenger delivers Suffolk's head to Margaret, and she carries it around like a macabre talisman. Henry flees from Jack Cade's army. Jack Cade wins a lot of important battles, but then his men turn on him and support the king instead. King Henry complains that he never wanted to be king in the first place. Jack Cade gets murdered in a garden. Act 4 has just 10 scenes. York declares himself king. Jack Cade's head is delivered to Henry. Somerset arrests York. Everybody picks sides and they prepare for battle. York kills Clifford. Young Clifford swears to murder York and York's children. Somerset dies. Margaret and Henry flee to London. The Yorkists are triumphant momentarily and plan to pursue the royalists and subdue them. The end. Phew. Boy. It's Jesus. a lot. Yeah. A we lot happens. That. Four minutes. Look a lot us. happens in this play. Hey, right on. Yeah. Look at what yeah. we did. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. let's let's talk some cool shit. Let's talk about authorship. 
Uh, this is one of those plays that has maybe controversially been claimed for Christopher Marlowe. <laughs> this claim happened a number of years ago, and I am certainly, I think I've said before, not going to argue with Gary Taylor, uh, especially not about authorship. So what they say, what they, what the editors of the new Oxford Shakespeare say about the authorship is that Shakespeare is most securely identified as the author of Act 3 and of Young Clifford's speech um, at the end of Act 5, middle of Act 5, somewhere in there. Marlowe probably wrote most of the Cade material in Act 4, and authorship of the rest of the play is contested. So, um, in fact, the the title page of 2 Henry 6 in the new Oxford reads William Shakespeare, Christopher Marlowe, and others. So, uh, probably this was done by committee. If I had to guess, can you imagine all of the playwrights just like sitting around a table in a pub being like, and then what's going to happen? Like a writer's room for a sitcom. Yeah, like just like a writer's room. And they're like, but yeah. what if Jack Cade did this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That'd be fun, though. That's a fun picture in my head. Right, right. <laughs> Shakespeare and Marlowe and Kid and Nash. Oh, my God. An early Green. modern writer's room. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. Be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and an anonymous just over in the corner. Yeah. Anonymous. Good old anonymous. I love him. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the authorship. So I also want to talk about uh, prophetic dreams. Oh, Yeah. Which is maybe a little bit more on the performative side. That's okay. Yeah, I'm just going to go where the spirit moves me, and the spirit is moving me to prophetic dreams. Because um, my girl Courtney is working on her dissertation, and she's going to have a substantial section on prophetic dreams in drama and other kinds of writing um so we've been talking about like where prophetic dreams show up in drama and they're all fucking over the history plays Mm. like they're all over the history plays right there's this dream that gloucester has about his staff being broken in this play um there's clarence's dream in richard the third there's that dream that henry four has right before he dies in two henry four yes yeah i'm not making this up yeah he has yes doesn't he yeah Yes. Um, yeah, they're they're all over the place. So wow, weird. Yeah, I wonder uh, why. A, yeah, and then there's there's the um, Calpurnia's dream in Caesar, which is a Roman play, but it's a Roman history play. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got up on the Twitters today, and I was like, "Hey, is this a thing in non-Shakespearean history plays?" And apparently, it is. Um, huh. In Thomas of Woodstock, there's a prophetic dream, and Edward the Fourth, Part Two, there's a prophetic dream. Um, so I am just I'm interested in what about history plays make them a fertile breeding ground for prophetic dreams, and I don't have an answer to that. I I just I think it's an interesting little trope that's popping up all yeah. over the place. Well, I mean, it's easy to have a prophetic dream about a historical event, right? I mean, you sure. know, uh, <laughs> right? So, like, I, I see it as from the writer's perspective as, like, a convenient little plot yeah. device to help yeah, yeah. kind of move things along. But also, ooh, look, you were right, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, 
But yeah, I, I wonder why that is. Why such a high volume in just the history plays? Yeah, because I, I mean, I can't think of any non-history play yeah. with a prophetic dream. So, yeah. Um, like, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of searching the Rolodex in my brain. I, yeah. I'm not sure I can either. Yeah. Uh, uh, Cymbeline, maybe? Maybe? Cause, oh, uh, yeah. The, the spirits appear. Yeah. Um, but also could make there's an argument to be made that Cymbeline is a history play totally yeah totally yeah I don't really have anything else to say about that other than like look at this weird thing yeah and it's a trope Um, that you will definitely see in this play yeah but my girl Courtney is gonna write a dissertation on it so she will have more to say than look at this weird thing well I can't wait for a few years from now yeah. <laughs> when, yeah, yeah. when we get to follow up on that with her yep. it'll be great yep 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 um all right so I also want to talk I'm just I'm actually I'm gonna just a couple quick more things some performance history this of, of the three Henry VI plays, this is the one that was written first. As as Aubrey said earlier, you will almost never see this done now just on its own. Like, that doesn't happen. It gets conflated with one or with three or with all of them. The Hollow Crown, when they did, when they did this tetralogy, they pushed this together with part one, which was a bad choice, Hollow Crown. That was a bad choice. You did it wrong. You're dumb. That whole thing was terrible, P.S. But they they cut Joan, I think, almost entirely. And they did all of part one in like half an hour. And then the rest of it was part two. And I was like, what the fuck are you doing? That is a bad choice and you're wrong. Anyway, um, the first known performance of the second part of Henry VI as part of the full eight play history cycle um, was staged at the Weimar Court Theater in Germany in 1864. The first English performance um, of the cycle was at Stratford-upon-Avon in 1906. So that brings me to this play was written first. It was performed first. um, And up until it appeared in The Folio, it was called The First part of the contention betwixt the two famous houses of York and Lancaster with the death of the good Duke Humphrey and the banishment and death of the Duke of Suffolk and the tragical end of the proud Cardinal of Winchester with the notable rebellion of Jack Cade and the Duke of York's first claim unto the crown. How's that for a title? My, my, my. So in uh, 1623, when this this play was put together with the folio, the folio people... The consortium of folio peoples um, regularized the title, so it's now two Henry VI. And as with most of the plays that we have multiple editions of them, there are some textual differences between the folio and the quarto text. So between um, contention, one contention and folio, um, the folio version is like a third longer than the quarto version, which is interessante. I'm not sure what exactly was added, but it is it is about a third longer. There is, I think, not the second part of the contention because that is three Henry VI and that title is something else. Part three, which our 101 episode is coming up in like two weeks, so you'll hear this again in like two weeks, was printed in octavo in 1595. Fascinating. And- 
Yeah, right? Isn't it? Huh. Um, and its full title is The True Tragedy of Richard, Duke of York, and the Death of Good King Henry VI, with the whole contention between the two houses Lancaster and York, as it was sundry times, acted by the Right Honorable the Earl of Pembroke, his servants, printed at London by P.S. for Thomas Millington, and are to be sold at a shop under St. Peter's Church in Cornwall, 1595. All right, that's it. That's all I got. <laughs> All right, so from the production side, I hope it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. So it doesn't go without so, saying. I mean, <laughs> don't hit me with logic. I, just, <laughs> I don't want to chit-chat, okay? Okay, um, so just do something to help people get caught up on where they are. It helps. I, I think what the do something that most theaters do is they do one Henry six and three Henry six and they like do them <laughs> together. Um, and like so that people don't have a lot of time to forget what happened between the first one and the second one. And and Shakespeare helps. You know, you've got the the Edward of Edward the third had seven sons and whatever. You've got all these folks who remind you in the first couple of acts of where they stand in the family tree and in the the whole War of the Roses. Um, but it still does get pretty hairy and really confusing. So I don't know, think about think about what kind of dramaturgical materials you would want to put out for for your audiences. Think about what you would want to give your actors to help them get caught up. You know, if you're teaching this, I mean it's a great sort of research scavenger hunt to get your get your students to orient each other to where we are in the timeline. Also, moving on with really no good segue at all is I, I found this really weird stage direction at this one point. I'm looking in the play. for it in the dictionary yeah. right now. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think I finally found it. Uh, it's in scene seven line yep. around line 57. Um, okay. So here's the, st- here's the stage direction. And maybe this is just a part of like early modern life that I don't understand, but here it is. And it's confusing. Enter at one door the armorer and his neighbors, drinking to him so much that he is drunk, and he enters with a drum before, and his staff with a sandbag fastened to it, and at the other door Peter, his man, with a drum and a sandbag, and prentices drinking to him. The fuck is up with that? Like, why sandbags on a staff? So this is interesting, is that that stage direction is only in the folio version. Weird. In the quarto, it's just two of the rebels with long staves. Mm-hmm. Huh. JK. JK. I might be misinterpreting this. That might just be a separate staff stage yeah, direction. I, yeah, from... I don't think these guys were rebels. Okay, so hang on, hang on, These hang guys on. are just drunken idiots that, like, it's it's a scene early, early-ish in the play yeah, where Henry um, gives over control two, to sentencing um, yeah, yeah. to show what a weak king he is, basically. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah, to these two idiots, these two armorers. Well, yeah, an armorer yeah, and his yeah. apprentice, yeah. Right, who are going to fight. Right. One has accused the other of treason uh-huh, falsely, uh-huh. and their sentence is to duel each other to the death. Okay, all right. Ha-ha. The Arden is coming in hot. Thank so, God. Combat flails with long, thin leather bags, as distinguished from the wooden agricultural flail or the metal military flail. So it's a specific kind of weapon. That had sandbags on it? Uh-huh. Yeah, a staff with a sandbag. Why would it be that way? So you could hit someone with it? Like, what was yeah. the sandbag for? Kind of like a mace? Yeah, like, yeah. So so the, the you staff You swing it around itself, and you hit somebody. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The staff itself is not the weapon, although it can uh, be the weapon. 
because um, it's a big long staff. But the sandbag, the swingy part, is gonna like hit you and it'll hurt uh, a lot, knock you over your feet, whatever. Okay, yeah. that makes so much more sense. Thank you. Yep. Okay, great. Okay, good. Yep. That well, for those of you out there tackling this play, not knowing what the hell that stage direction is about, now you know. Speaking of weapons, fights, fights, fights. Your fight choreographer is going to have so much fun with this play. As we mentioned uh, earlier, there's lots of little skirmishes, lots of slashings and stabbings and beheadings and, you know, little fights everywhere Um, and some big ones, too. Uh, So that's really, really fun to stage. And there's not only one, but two severed heads carried around on stage. How fun is that? I, I like it. Um, it's gross, but I like it. Also thinking about, um, I know in a previous episode, we talked about like tracking the tendencies of these family members through plays seems to me, uh, this was kind of jarring to me, um, as I rewatched the second part of Henry VI, uh, on our archives recently. Um, apparently when it comes to confiding in the audience, the York apple does not very fall too far from the tree. Uh, Richard Plantagenet, Richard of York. Uh, Richard III's dad has a few speeches that really give his son a run for his money. Um, So it's just interesting how like father, like son, really. You see it a lot in Richard III later. Um, Speaking of Richard III, he does make a very brief appearance in this play at the very, very end. York kind of lets him run wild in this final battle. And it's like, dun, 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 we're going to London to get him. (laughs) And then they just like run off. And then you see a lot more of him in in the third part of Henry VI. Um, So I just find it interesting that uh, Richard of York monologues to the audience about his evil schemes much in the way um, Richard of Gloucester later does. Also, there's a really fun like CSI crime scene moment in scene 11 right after Humphrey is murdered and Warwick is like really suspicious about how he died. Humphrey is is strangled uh, but then propped up in his bed like like it ain't no thing. Um, and Warwick is like looking at the body and he's like, no, there are strangulation marks on the body. Um, it's just a f- interesting little, I kind of cracked up about it, how specific he was about the marks on the body and how it could not have been a natural death. I just kind of cracked up. Also, you know how much we love pirates on this show. There are pirates in this play, really murderous, merciless pirates who murder my boo-boo Suffolk, but it's fine. <sighs> I'll live. Um, but yeah, pirates. I mean, yeah, I'll have to. My heart will go on. (laughs) Shall we play a game? Yeah, let's do it. It's game time. We're going to play line roulette. Yep, sure. It's my turn. Yep, sure is. I'm I'm nervous to unleash these dice. I'm I'm nervous for you to unleash the dice. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So we don't have an act six. Uh, Act five. Okay. Hold up. Scene two. Okay. Ooh, five two. All right. Line twenty-two. Ooh. All right. So line twenty-two in my Oxford edition of Act Five, Scene Two, is Clifford. He says, "Nor should thy prowess want praise and esteem." Interesting. God, I wish it had been line 28. A dreadful lay. Address oh. thee instantly. No, sorry. Line 29, I guess, for you. Oh. The French the one. French one. 
Ah, <laughs> uh, you're evil. That would have been really fun. That would have been hilarious. I yeah, that would have been. But oh well. Okay, yeah, so. Alright. <laughs> um. Nor should thy prowess want praise and esteem. Okay, I think I got it. I think I'm ready to go for a minute on this. All right. Whenever you are ready, take it away. Okay. So the line is, nor should thy prowess want praise and esteem. And I think this line encapsulates the whole play because I think this whole play is about balancing power and the need for praise and esteem. You've got York over here uh, needing the esteem, needing uh, the power and going for it. Um, you've got Henry on the other side who really he just wants to devote his life to God. And he's kind of sad that he's royal at all and like has to deal with it. Um, and and so he he doesn't want that prowess and praise and esteem. He just wants to be a simple guy. Uh, and then you've got a guy like Humphrey or Gloucester, as we named him in the summary, who who tries to guide Henry into being a good ruler, but he's got um, uh, vultures kind of snapping all around him, everybody wanting that that prowess. Uh, Suffolk wants that prowess. Margaret definitely wants the prowess and the praise and the esteem. Um, and Clifford saying you shouldn't want it is kind of the, the crux of the problem. Ta-da! Very good, very good. Yay! I haven't well, done line roulette in a long time. It hasn't I been my know. turn in a while, I so know. I'm glad. I'm also glad we did not play fuck, marry, kill <laughs> with these characters. <laughs> I don't want to fuck or marry or kill any of them. Well, actually, I want to uh, kill all of them. I want to. Outside of Suffolk, I mean, outside of Suffolk, I'm any, so anyway. Such a sleazeball. Oh, I just love bad boys. I don't know what to say. No, <sighs> I have terrible taste. Okay. No. Yeah, so some so listener emails. emails. Um, We've gotten so much email lately, and it's been amazing. We have. Yeah, there's been a lot of really cool and, and meaningful interaction. We got a request from a guy named Mason asking if we would review his film, which is an adaptation of Dr. Faustus. We mm -hmm. haven't gotten there yet, but I am really curious, and uh, mm -hmm. when I have a little downtime after SAA, um, be sure, Mason, I will I will be taking a look at it because mm -hmm. I love that shit. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Shout out to Michelle Swanson, who's been using our podcasts in the classroom with her high school kids, which is awesome. Yeah. Awesome. She says that they write line roulette essays, which is amazing. Yeah. That's so like, fucking great. Yeah. It's really, really, really cool. Um, oh, this is this is the one that I wanted to talk about because she says, um, and sorry to quote without your permission, Michelle. I'm sorry. Uh, that she's got a Shakespeare in the Park production of Macbeth that they're going to do in the summer, and she oh, says, right. "Any advice on how to pull together a Shakespeare play for an undereducated area with a variety of ages in the cast?" Yeah, Which great I think question. We fucking talk about right? Yes, 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 yes. Oh, thank so you for all, putting my brain back on this. Costume signifiers. Yeah, like if they are royalty, give them a crown. If they are nobles, give them some kind of sash. Like make it make it so that your audience can look at whatever whoever's on stage and know their status immediately know where they fall in the world mm -hmm. um and please dear god please don't put them all in catholic school girl plaid because you can't <laughs> find kits <laughs> don't do that that's a bad idea yeah 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 there's there you know i um 
I was in a similar situation several times, actually, when I was um, producing the first Shakespeare plays ever that some of my students had done in when I taught in L.A. And, and then when I taught in rural sort of Central Valley, California. And, you know, first of all, just because a group is maybe a little underexposed to Shakespeare, mm-hmm. I, you know, don't go in thinking that they're never going to get it. Oh, yeah, um, they'll get it. They'll get it yeah, for sure. they'll get it, you know, and, and try to remind everyone involved that this is Shakespeare wrote in early modern English. It's not old English. It's not even middle English. That shit mm-hmm. you actually can't read. Mm-hmm. There's a whole other group of scholars that are good at that. Mm-hmm. Early modern English, it just uh, syntactically is a little bit different sometimes. Yep. Um, and remind your students that if a character is hard to understand, it's because the character is hard to understand not because mm-hmm. Shakespeare is impenetrable in some way right yeah. uh, so Shakespeare used early modern English it's the same it's like 98% the same words that we still use yep. you know the first words in Hamlet are who's there right yep. it's it's totally normal English like we there's a lot of stigma around oh I can never understand that it's like words that I'm never gonna get and that's not true first of all not true yeah um do a do a judicious cut also like Macbeth is not long it's 2200 lines but you know cut that shit to 90 minutes maybe especially if you're in the park in August I don't know what part of the country you're in but it's gonna be hot probably so cut it (laughs) cut it cut it cut it and honestly cut the porter just I don't know man the the knock knock jokes though I mean, I know we went over that in I one mean, of our sure. episodes like, about. I, yeah. I know. I mean, I guess Even the I said the, jo- the jokes are bad. Fine, but like all the equivocator shit. Yeah. Aw. Yeah. Maybe yeah. just have him open the door. Yeah. And like let in Macduff. Sure. And call it a day. Yeah. 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 I'd buy that cut. You know, do what you got to do in terms of time and like continuity um, to help people out. Also, I don't think there's anything wrong with like updating costumes. And trying to oh, trying yeah, to sure. situate the the story in a more modern context yeah. that is really relatable they to people. They don't have to wear kilts. They definitely don't have to wear kilts, and it doesn't you know have mean? to be Bag museum Shakespeare swords. in doublets uh-huh. and pumpkin pants either. You nope. know, like I remember the uh, first Much Ado I ever did. We said it like in the fifties, and they had poodle mm-hmm. skirts, and it was super cute. cute. Yeah, and then when we did a Midsummer at at a different high school, um, we said it in high school. So like. You know, my fairies were like dorky drama kids or or the mechanicals were the dorky drama kids. You know what I mean? So like really, really like right now relatable. Yeah. And this is this is a play. Right. That's very. Martial. Yeah. Um, So this is a play that cries out for like camo and fatigue. Yeah. 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 Like a military sort of aspect. For sure. Which you can get anywhere Mm -hmm. for sure. Um, So I don't give that a try. Yeah. Those are those are my thoughts on, on yeah. pulling together Macbeth. Yeah, and what have else? fun. Oh man. Oh my god, have so much fun. Oh man, is that such a great play? Yeah. So great. Good luck with that. Um, Tell us how it goes. Please update us how uh, on how it went. I'm really yeah, I'm I'm pulling for, sure. for you. That's so awesome, sure. Michelle. Speaking of Macbeth, we also got some other fan mail insisting that the curse is real, that the Macbeth curse is real. It's not Suze. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's a pretty big coincidence, though, that she happened to say it in the playhouse and then an actor hit his head and got a concussion and had to be filled in. The understudy had to fill in mid-show. Because it's Suze. (laughs) 
<laughs> in a Shakespeare playhouse. No. And it's a war play. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, shit I, happens. Yeah, I mean, I, know. I love you, Suze, but no, it's not, it's not cursed. Yeah. We're just we're roasting Suze a tiny bit, but no, thanks for the Suze. thanks for reaching out, Suze. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, Caitlin, who got in touch over Pericles, get in touch, girl. You know I'll talk about Pericles with you anytime. She's in a production of Pericles right now. Oh. that opens in the second week of May, which is super exciting. Yeah, break a leg. That's awesome. Yeah. And also, like she says, she doesn't want to impose because it's Aww. a crazy time of year. And like, girl, you were never imposing. You're to talk so about cute. Pericles. That's great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I appreciate the not wanting to overload us because it is fucking crazy right now. But also, I love to talk about Pericles. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, thanks for reaching out, Caitlin. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks for the fan mail, everybody. We just, know, we love it. We love it. We read everything. We do. Um, we try to respond to as much as we can. Sometimes things fall through the cracks and we're sorry. Um we're always behind and also yeah. because it doesn't the 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 ways that the emails come in they don't yeah. always come to the both of us because right. technology right um so you know we we do we do what we do yeah but um, we do definitely read everything oh my god and we love it so much yeah yeah we really so really much. dig it it's great yeah so all right, all right. dick bracket time <laughs> So we're sorry that we're a week late on this. It just didn't make it onto the outline last week. Yeah, and then we finished recording. And then five minutes later, it was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> we didn't do the thing. Yeah. Well, so, a little suspense never hurt anybody. Yeah. So uh, we we are ready to declare a winner. Yep. And that winner is Tamberlane. Really? Did he actually win the vote? Jessica? Yeah. <laughs> it was a close one, huh? It was very close, but look, I did the math. Just uh, what was the count? What to what? Yeah, okay, okay. So, so there were two polls. There was one on the Whamlet and one right. on the me. Right, like we um, do, like we always yeah, do, like we do. Plus, I took a straw poll around my department for people who aren't on the Twitters. Oh, did you? I did, and okay. that is what bumped it. Oh. But let me let me walk you through the map. What are you looking at? Also, there's a bug crawling on my ceiling above me. I'm sorry. Is it a scary bug? No. Are you gonna real... die? No. Okay. It's just distracting. Sorry. I mean, that's fine. I was just like, are you about to get eaten? Are we about to? <laughs> I hope not. Okay. Okay. So here's the math. Here's here's what came down. So yeah. on my tweeter, um, Tamerlane came in with 53% of 51 votes. 50, and that's the most voter turnout, by the way, that we've had ever, which is so exciting. Uh, so, And then on the Whamlet Twitter, Tamerlane came in with uh, 45% of 44 votes. Which I don't understand, y'all. Yeah. Okay. So I don't get it. In total, uh, Tamerlane came in, of the Twitter votes, came in with 47 out of 91 votes. Okay. Yeah. So it was... It was a, a margin of error of like less than one vote. Yeah. Wow. Um, and then I got an additional five votes for Tamberlane in my department. Hmm. Plus my vote for Tamberlane because I don't vote in the polls. Tamberlane. And also fuck all of you because Tamberlane. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we did get. Okay. So I want to shout out an, another person, um, Maddie Butita, 
for she made but on twitter she made a really great argument really great argument. she made a really great argument as to why everyone was wrong about the brothers malfi being bigger dicks than tamberlaine and she basically her conclusion basically was and i think it's really smart um that uh, there, the damage that the Malfi brothers do mm-hmm. is domestic. It is within their family, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and whereas the the damage that Tamburlaine commits, uh, he it's just everywhere. He lays destruction everywhere, everywhere he goes, and upon everyone he meets. Mm-hmm. So I mean, he the just the scope, the scope of his dickishness is so much larger. Mm-hmm. That and like end of story. Yeah, there's also um someone apologies for not remembering who chimed in also on Twitter that they they thought that the definition of dick didn't really lend itself to evil and that that was why they had voted in the other way because they thought that the Malfi brothers were like small beans enough to be dicks but tamberlaine was a genocidal maniac which is too evil to be a dick which like i guess but that's kind of splitting hairs i mean hitler was a dick too y'all yeah like come on tamberlaine is like hitler level dickishness so that draws our dick bracket to a close and i'm just i'm thrilled that what started this all was me asking is tamberlaine the biggest dick in early modern drama my thesis is yes and yeah it is. The, it's the been borne out by the voters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll see well, what happens when we're at SAA when we exactly. do another bracket uh, yeah. amongst different a group of peers. An abbreviated bracket. But yes. We'll have those results yes. for you next week. Yeah. Should be fun. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening. We hope, as always, that you leave the podcast more informed than when you started. And you can tune in next week to hear us talk about the Shakespeare Association of America, which is happening right now-ish as you're listening to this podcast, or has just happened. Uh, time is hard. I think it's just happened. I don't as you're listening know. to this podcast. Yeah. But then we're going to yes. talk about it. Yes. <laughs> after you listen to this podcast. It's in our future, but I think it's in your past. But now it's in all of our futures because no one yet has heard And time is a pretzel and it's all in the future Uh, in the past. Yep. Anyway, it's going to be great. (laughs) We're going to have a lot of things to say. Oh my gosh. But the first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. (laughs) Whamlet out. Yep. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. For show notes and other fun things, visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can drop us a line at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Or follow us on Instagram at hurlyburlyshakes. Or on Twitter at hurlyburlyshake. The Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shu. You can learn more about him at jonathanshu.com or find his albums on iTunes. All opinions you heard on this podcast are strictly our own and not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study. been six months since I've been on the road, got out of jail six months ago. I feel like I'm knocking on Satan's door, cause to tell the truth I can't take it no more.
Gonna marry me, the first woman I see. She's gonna love and do right by me. Have a kid, have some family. Gonna marry me, the first woman I see. Need my fuck. I forgot my Glockenspiel. Hang on. Pause. I'm getting my Glockenspiel. Talk amongst yourselves. Becky. Talk amongst yourselves, Becky. Get yourself together, Becky.